Welcome to the Daily Canon Podcast. Hello again, listeners. Welcome to another Daily Canon Weekly Podcast. Uh, it's a weekly podcast that follows perhaps not the most exciting game of the Arteta revolution, but to try and give you an exciting podcast, I'm joined by both podcast regular Anita, all the way from Croatia, as always. Hello, Anita. Hello, Matthew. And also podcast, special guest, new arrival, I don't know, call it what you want, June, all the way from Boston, and uh, hopefully some of you follow her on Twitter. She's certainly fairly prolific, particularly in the Arsenal scene, but also more general conversation. Hello to you, June. Hello, Matthew, and I'm so happy to be here. Ah, here we go. That's what we want. I just just hope the listeners (laughs) are happy to listen to us. (laughs) (laughs) That's all before we start talking about the magic. (laughs) Let's just just end here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've we've, we've peaked, but we have to keep going. We have to keep going. The long downhill trundle awaits us. Uh, So, yes, as you say, we do have to talk about the match. And because there are a number of other things we want to talk about, let's talk about the match first up so we can, A, get it out of the way, and B, appeal to those people who only want to listen to people talking about matches and nothing else. So, Turf Moor, Burnley nil, Arsenal nil. June, what was your experience of this uh, feast of football? Oh, where to begin? You know, there were were just so many things that I wouldn't say went well, but so many things that occurred. Yes. In a general sense that they existed. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that I have to think about is I am very impressed that our players are still more or less all alive after leaving Turf Moor, which I think we should all take a moment to be thankful for, (laughs) given the state of that pitch, as we have all discussed. And also the fact that at one point I really thought David Luiz was going to walk off the pitch and just go straight to hospital. <laughs> but somehow he played the entire game and um, I'm, I really don't understand how that happened. Yeah, it's quite interesting watching, you know, being online or whatever and interacting with people about some of the, the, the post-match discussion. Uh, a lot of it did concern, the, shall we say, the clash of styles, um, the different approaches, uh, Obviously, Arteta, as Guardiola before him, had made sure everyone knew about the fact that Burnley grow their grass long and don't water their pitch, so it's impossible to play good passing football along the ground. Uh, Which may also be an illustration of why our best chance creation in the match was almost exclusively uh, lofted passes or aerial through balls. Um, So that shows some adaptation from the team. Uh, Before we dive more deeply uh, what about you Anita I know that you didn't get to see uh, that much of the game as it happened lucky you Um, (laughs) but you have caught up as best you can as of course you always do yeah I was I had the pleasure of watching watching it on Twitter so that that's always fun to see (laughs) how people react and funny enough I haven't seen any comments about the situation the state of the pitch and the length of the grass or anything Mikel Teta's interview after the match was the first time I, I heard about the fact that the pitch was really poor and it didn't help us play well. And yeah, mostly people were tweeting about Lacazette. <laughs> 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 I, I, I did watch the highlights and um, the always great uh, the breakdown by Adrian Clark on, on Arsenal player. Mm-hmm. And yes, definitely. All our best chances came from long passes from David Lewis, who we know is really great at that, and Rani Chak, who is, again, really, really good at that. And it's really a shame to have Obama Young back, finally, again, which 
everyone was happy about before the match started and then he really wasted a few chances that he usually scores from and gets goals. Oh, but also Bamiyang actually created a few chances for others as well. Um, yeah. Which, which was kind of interesting what a creative impact he was having in the absence of that being elsewhere. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people also on Twitter, I mean, uh, there was a, a wonderfully entertaining Twitter thread started by, I think, James Benj from Football London. Uh, shall we say, uh, passing observation on some of the more muscular aspects of Burnley's football. And... <laughs> And I, 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 I couldn't resist uh, wading in a tiny bit as people from both sides of the argument threw spears and pitchforks at each other. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, it's something which is obviously that feeling is polarised by historical bias, but also the reception of the, of the home supporters at Burnley. I mean, uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of the details of the match, <laughs> how did you enjoy the, the home fans, June? Well, I think it was, they were very consistent in that anything that occurred, and as I've said, many things did occur in that game. Every occurrence was met by a very loud chorus of boos. <laughs> it's like being at the farm, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> or a really bad stand up comic, but you know. Yeah. Um, just to circle back real quickly to what Anita was saying about the long balls that David Luiz, yes, did have, did create some really good chances for us, but. I have to throw a shout out to Mustafi, who actually completed 50% of his long passes in that game. Mm. And I think that shouldn't be overlooked because, again, that seems to be part of the ongoing miracle of the rehabilitation of Skodra Mustafi by Arteta. <laughs> well, well it's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that since that Chelsea game where obviously he started the game with that passing the ball to the opposition with alarming regularity culminating in that massive cock-up, <gasps> since then his passing has been brilliant. <laughs> I know. It was like he just needed that one really, really horrendous chance to get it all out of his system. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know if like every 10 games or so we just let Mustafi do something truly atrocious. And then the other nine, he's fantastic. Like, is this how we have to just handle him going forward? <laughs> well, I mean, he's 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 already shown in some improvement because un, under Emery, um, he was averaging sort of one or two major cock-ups a game. And now he's then <laughs> averaging one major cock-up every two games. So we're already turning the ship around a little bit. But it, as you say, it's great to see him returning to some of the form that he showed when he first joined the club and was partnering Koscielny. And we thought, oh, you know, actually there's a signing we're quite happy with. And we were actually very... Def- I mean, we had an incredible defensive record for the first 20 or so games that Mustafi was in the team until the wheels fell off and the boot fell off and the bumpers fell off. Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good thing that you mentioned Koscielny because I... As you saw, both said that he he now averages less uh, call cups per ma- per match and actually <laughs> goes a few matches without uh, some kind of a mistake. I thought of Kostiani because I I think I remember correctly. He used to be like that, you know, have a re- some really huge mistake in a match uh, in almost every match until he became a more consistent and really great defender for us as well. Maybe that's you know like a life cycle of Arsenal defender. Yeah, maybe. Well, I do remember Koscielny also had um, Vermaelen to cover for him at one point, though also Vermaelen contributed his own share of strange yeah. occurrences, if you yeah. will. But then I think having Mertesacker next to him really helped. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Mertesacker is obviously, you know, part of the reason we came to like him so much, despite the fact he can't really run, is he's a, <laughs> a player that n- knew his own game incredibly well and had honed it well enough to, you know, be a regular for the one of the best international sides in the world. Um, and so therefore knew what his limitations were, in fact, was very acutely aware of his limitations and did his best to play within those, which gave a sort of stability. And I remember talking on the podcast at the start of the season um, to both uh, Paul and I think Anita, uh, and we were talking about the signing of David Luiz and who you'd pair him with and how you would achieve some sort of calmness in the central defence when you've got a lot of characters that aren't noted for calm defending. Um but yeah, I mean, we have to take our hat off to Mr. Mustafi, who's uh, the, the last two and a half games has had his best form for the club in quite some time, both on the ball and also defensively. And I thought against Burnley, he was our best defender and probably one of our two or three best players on the pitch, actually. It's really frustrating that you have to say two and a half matches as a good form. <laughs> <laughs> But it is what it is. I mean, you take what you get. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, given that this is a team who that are currently mid-table and have had, in terms of wins, their worst start to a season since, well, over a century, uh, we do have to take the positives when we can find them. <laughs> and the positives are that the defence is a lot better and Mustafi has been part of that. Um, looking elsewhere in the match, I mean, wh- what did you make of the performance of our midfield before we get to the front line, June? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think like every three minutes or so in that game, I found myself missing Aaron Ramsey. <laughs> I think don't, it was don't my Anita's going to cry. <laughs> um, I'm really sorry to bring that up, but that's that really is what I've written on my little note sheet here, was just Aaron Ramsey. <laughs> um, it's every match. which it's, it's every match, but especially this one, I feel like, because, I mean, I hate to feed into hashtag the narrative of, oh, Arsenal didn't work hard enough, they didn't want it enough, and that's why you need like harder workers in the middle of the pitch. I don't think that's the problem with what happened at Turf Moor, but I do think a player like Aaron Ramsey that will run into the box after having like shepherded the ball from one end of the pitch to the other is something that we are missing right now because I don't think you get that from the likes of Shaka, obviously, or necessarily Torreira or Gunduzi, who are just quite inconsistent and out of form right now, in my opinion. And even Ozil has sort of stopped running into the penalty area with any regularity. He has, and I do think that is a bit of a hangover from the Emery era and also just a lack of confidence from him in general, you know, since, you know, the 2018 World Cup and possibly before then, is that Mesut Ozil isn't, I I think he's maybe taken, like, what, two shots in the last two seasons? Yeah. If that... yeah, I mean, I mean, it's he's, I mean, actually in the Burnley game, he did actually try and take a couple of shots, and one of which ricocheted, which led to Lacazette almost having a great chance, but it was a great last-ditch tackle from the defender just as Lacazette was about to strike the ball for that goal he needs more than life itself. Um, oh, but, but yeah, yeah the, go ahead, Anita. Yeah, I want to uh, say about Mesut Ozil because I really, really like him and really want him to, you know, do well. But I read a really depressing stat <laughs> today that uh, he had only created three big chances in 
50 Premier League and Europa League matches over the last two seasons. Yeah. Wow. And that's I think, what I, I, think his, I saw that too. Yeah. Yeah, like that's what his job is. What what we have him for to create big chances for for others. And let's not even talk about the fact that he hasn't scored for midfield for for how long? Who knows? And the assists as well. I mean, just it's really you want him to succeed. You want him to do well because he's a good good person, good player. But. Yeah, it's really depressing numbers and the match at at Turf Moor, which was his 250th match for Arsenal. I think that he, from what I've seen and comments and highlights and everything, he performed just as well as Miguel used to perform in his big, you know, anniversary <laughs> matches or anything. You remember that thousand match? And, and I, I don't. Yeah. No, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. That was the comparison that came to my mind when I saw those stats. Really depressing. Yeah, I did see a stat this morning that like something his expected goals and assists per game so far this season is zero point one. <laughs> I that don't quote me on that because that's just off the top of my head. But it was something ridiculously low, and just the evidence of our eyes, I think, supports that. But on the other hand, I think the stats don't tell the whole story because for quite a lot of the season under Emery. Mesut Ozil was being required to go all the way back to the edge of our own penalty area to pick up the ball mm. and then carry it or pass it all the way through midfield because Ganduzi and whoever was partnering him were just instructed to just stay and shield the back line because Emery insisted on having those two holding mids at all times. So really, it was Mesut Ozil and 70 yards of space that he had to cover himself every single game, which doesn't really facilitate creation when he did get to play. When he did get to play, there was that. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, oh you raised God. something very significant there as well, which I, I think one of the reasons why there has been some alarmist responses to this game from some of the Arsenal fans online has been that this was the first Arsenal game under Arteta that, apart from the obligatory concession of a cheap goal, felt like Emery Ball. Be- because we we a- apart from that opening twenty minutes when we really went at them, we should have scored three or four goals really from either the chances or the positions that we created. Um, aside from that, it was a very passive performance until until later in the game, and and that was one of the things which was highlighted under Unai Emery was a passivity, a, a kind of, and you'd have those as you say those two central midfielders would not just be. Uh, playing a more defensive role, but also would would be reactive rather than proactive in in almost every situation, yeah. uh, which, as you say, would would leave Özil trying to do the job of three people when his fitness levels were barely dictating he could do his own job. Um, and now we're in a situation where we've sort of slightly moved away from that through increased effort. But um, we still don't have a particularly up and down central midfield. And because uh, obviously we're trying to sort out our backline first, it's very clear that Arteta is prioritising the defensive solidity. And uh, as a result, we saw against Burnley. You know, once once we didn't get that early goal, the pace slightly dropped off, and then it became back to a bit more like the Emery model of deeper sitting central midfielders, not enough pressure on the ball, and Özil having a, a big box of forty yards of space and not a teammate entering that box with yeah. him. Um, 
So, I mean, do we think that's down to individual performance or do we think that's down to a, a particular tactical approach and not being quite rightly balanced? Question to the floor. <laughs> I, I want to say it's a combination of both. I do think Arteta was, you know, caught a bit with his pants down and that he didn't have a plan B mm. after Saka's knee, you know, was brutally taken out more or less in the first 15 minutes of the game. Um, but after that, I'm not sure the team really responded in the way that we did, you know, say against Chelsea when we were pegged back by, you know, whatever happened in Mustafi's head in that moment. But also, I don't think you can reasonably expect a team to put in that kind of Chelsea second half week in and week out because just physically that's not possible for anyone to do with the demands of the Premier League and all the competitions we're in. Mm. And um, second of all, as Arteta said, the grass really was not suited to any kind of speedy passing football, and we just had to loft it and hope someone got onto the end. I actually watched the first 20 minutes of Burnley just before we're recording, um, and I noticed that Bourne Leno kept pinging the ball at Mesut Ozil, who just had no one around him, mm. because somehow he was just left in all the space which the commentators were like, oh, how can Burnley do that? They have to close him down. You can't give Ozil that much space. And I was like, well, actually you can, because even if he gets the ball, there's no one he can pass it to. They, they so, closed everyone else down. Yeah, because everyone else was closed mm. down, or they weren't able to get forward. Or, you know, the ball landed at Ozil, he gave it to Lacazette, who then missed. <laughs> well, um, well, it's one of the things, wasn't it, that Adrian Clark highlighted in Eta, wasn't it, that... Uh, they were really pressing onto our do defensive midfielders and pressing yeah. our forward players, but they were leaving that Urzel space quite open, which initially we exploited very well, and particularly with Mustafi's aforementioned good passing out from the back. Uh, and it just sort of seems entirely counterintuitive, doesn't it, as a tactic to leave the creative number one ten free <laughs> uh, and marking <laughs> the rest. Play of the by team. himself. Yeah, but I, su- I, su- I suppose given his lack of end product that we've seen in the last couple of years maybe that's not so stupid uh, I mean no. it might actually be quite smart because I would think it's harder you know to press or mark Mesut Ozil than it is to say do the same to Xhaka yeah indeed I mean yeah you're much more likely to have Xhaka turn over the ball than to have Ozil do the same well, also that Özil, I suppose, his his primary specialism in his entire career has been finding space by moving it by moving into unexpected positions. That's you know, whenever he's playing well, that's what he does best. People talk about his technique on the ball, but there's lots of people who can play good passes. Uh, but his ability to f- get five to ten yards of space in unexpected positions has always been, for me, his greatest strength which um as his physical prowess is slightly in decline i think has tailed off a tiny bit um but uh, yeah i mean as you say it prevents him having anyone to give the ball to um which apart from i mean you know it's a kind of, it's interesting seeing the reaction to this game because a lot of people have been focused on the fact that burnley missed late chances and particularly that one from jay rodriguez which really should have been a goal but everyone seems to have conveniently forgotten the fact that Arsenal had big chances in the first half and for the first half hour were very dominant, really, in the game until essentially Saka got injured and we, we tactically didn't know what to do after that. Um, yeah. So with that in mind, what do we think of the performance of our rejigged front three? 
Well, from what I've seen on highlights and uh, following on Twitter and everything, as we already mentioned, Aubameyang was really, it was really good to have have him back because not only was he in the right right places at the right moments quite a few times, he also created chances for, for his teammates as well. Mm. And uh, I mean, I don't have to mention that because I think it has been happening for a few matches now, the frustration that is Lacazette and his lack of finishing and basically anything <laughs> in anything you know that you can actually see and bring some kind of help to the team i mean it's really frustrating and i'm from what i've seen and the you know comments and everything during the match uh, people have really mentioned that it, it was kind of a mistake from from marteta to not bring uh, Lacazette out sooner and bring either Pepe or Martinelli or anyone on. I mean, what was your thought, June? I mean, obviously we had we saw Aubameyang come in and Martinelli move to the right, and then Aubameyang obviously being pretty effective apart from his finishing from the left. What's your take of the performance specifically, and also about the Lacazette situation more generally? Uh, the Lacazette situation. It, I want to believe that it is just an issue of once he starts scoring, you know, the floodgates will open and we'll be back to business as usual. It, but at this point, because he's gone so long without showing us the kind of performance that we've expected, I'm starting to wonder if he actually needs a longer break or a different kind of setup. Um, because, like, Martinelli was fantastic the last couple of games when we really needed him to step up. He absolutely stepped up. But I think we do need to remember he is still a teenager. Mm. And as brilliant as a teenager is, sometimes they're going to make really strange decisions on the pitch, (laughs) um, which Martinelli did, to my count, at least three or four times in the game. You know, situations where he should have passed and he didn't, or he uh, should not have passed and tried to lay it off to someone else when he should have just taken the shot. But that's something that you can't really correct unless you've played another three seasons in the Premier League. So I'm not too worried about that. It just it does worry me that Lacazette can't find a goal for anything. I mean, at one point it felt like Aubameyang was doing everything except move the goalpost to get Lacazette to score <laughs> <laughs> and trying to you know just buff up his best friend's confidence and just it wasn't working. And I think the frustration was showing the longer the game went on and the more frustrated Lacazette got the less effective he became. Yes. So I do agree that Arteta probably should have taken him off earlier, but obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, and you never yeah. really knew if that was the game where Lacazette just banged one in at 70 out of nowhere and suddenly, you know, we're good for the next five. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, he was looking like he was struggling before he had that chance in the penalty area where he managed to, you know, move his feet quite quickly and, and get a shot off, which sadly got blocked. But... Uh, I, I mean, for me, a large part of the problem is is because we haven't got anyone else who can fulfil that function at all, he's sort of having to play that sort of deep-lying forward role, that kind of, you know, I mean, people are comparing it to Firmino, but obviously he's not that kind of player. But essentially some of that role, the mixture of what I suppose Olivier Giroud used to do for us. And obviously that limits, well, it uh, completely removes one of Lacazette's greatest strengths, which is being able to work tight spaces in the penalty box because he's basically 
with the pace of the players around him and the speed of our attacks, he's not actually getting into the box on our counter-attacks. And, to, and you know, he's only really getting into the box when we've got sustained possession. And then normally he's marked by two six-foot monsters. Um, yep. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure we're doing... I mean, you know, despite the efforts of individuals, I'm not sure that systemically we're doing that much to help him get chances and I think the same was definitely true uh, for the second half of the era of Unai Emery where we became such a kind of passive counter-attacking team that again it prevented Lacazette getting in those positions um, but it, it, it does you know there is clearly a problem of confidence there and you know picking up on also what you mentioned earlier June one of the the two things I sort of noted at the time, one of which I think I popped out on Twitter, was that both Lacazette and Ozil are, are a problem for the team because they're both playing without conviction. You know, they're both, you can tell they're both struggling for confidence. You can tell they're both very aware of what they're not doing, that they should be or could be. Um, and, and it's definitely in their heads a bit. Uh, which is obviously going to have an impact on performance, even for such established players. Yeah. Um, I mean, Something actually Mustafi said to um, .com today, not to bring up Mustafi again. This is very out of character for me, by the way, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know. I'm usually the first one to say, oh, Mustafi, I've been over him since 2014. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And yet here I am talking about Mustafi 24-7. <laughs> uh, but he did say something which was, um, when I think they were asking him, like, oh, what did what did the team need to do now to improve? And he said, well, I don't know. Just we just need to play our game. It's just a situation where we just have to win one. All we need is that like one spark, and yeah. things will get better. And I just I want to believe that so badly because <laughs> it does feel like it. Like on paper, we have all the ingredients for success. Just like what's missing? Is it just that one game that makes us remember? Oh, we're actually quite good at football. I mean, I think we have to take circumstances into account and opponents. You know, again, a lot of people were saying, you know, we should be expecting to turn up and roll Burnley over. But, you know, and we, of course, we, we went into the game having them beat, beaten them nine times in a row. Um, but, you know, we have to remember that out, apart from losing to Norwich in the FA Cup with their reserve team, um, their last two league fixtures were beating Manchester United away and Leicester City at home. Um, yeah. So you know this yeah. is Burnley are a, Burnley are and always have been a streaky team, which is why, despite the fact they're defensively pretty solid, they never really get above mid table. Um, and you know we've played them at their ground when they're in the best form they've had all season. Um, so that has to be taken into account. Um, I mean, do you do you? How do you think we've coped with their well, shall we say, rudimentary tactics and physicality? John, oh sorry, yeah, I didn't even watch. So. <laughs> 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 this wasn't shown in highlights. <laughs> I was I was trying to look at the stat of how many big chances Burnley had, and I I can't quite find it right now. But if I remember correctly, it was. A little over four, depending on which site you were looking at. Yeah, they had four right. big chances, which sounds about right. And Arsenal had the same. We have between four and five big chances, depending on whether you count a couple of the headers or not. Mm. Um, so, in that sense, I think Burnley really earned that point. Like, we should not be expecting to turn up at an away game when our away form isn't great. Our strikers aren't firing. We are transitioning under a new coach. 
basically all our fullbacks are injured or just recently returned from injury. So, you know, again, just everyone should remember Saka is not a left back. He's been doing fantastic, but he's not a left back. Um, so from there, given what we were operating at, maybe, you know, what, 60, 70% of our full attack and ability that Burnley playing like 100% the kind of game they set out to play to absolutely stymie us and make us play the way that they wanted to. Um, like, I will credit our defense and midfield for not giving up a goal, frankly, even though at times it looked like Burnley really didn't know how to hit the target, period, which did help. Yes. Because I think there was like a th- at least three times when they got basically a clear shot on the goal and Leno didn't even have to move because they just missed it way wide. Yeah, and, you know, and it's partly because... Uh, the kind of attacking players that have the sort of work rate that Burnley's strikers and attacking players do tend to be those who are less than the top draw in terms of technical ability and if they are the top draw of the technical ability they have that kind of work rate then they end up playing for Barcelona or something (laughs) (laughs) Um, so uh, you know those those stylistic clashes are always going to lead to different strengths and different weaknesses Uh, I was interested what you were talking about in terms of the imposition of style there and and it and it was very much a game where at different points, each team was able to impose its style on the other. You know, both early and late, Arsenal had some effectiveness with our passing football, our a uh, bit of a combination play, etc. But they, during that whole middle period, Burnley were able to impose their style on us and make and push us back into a position of having to fight off crosses from wide areas and and, and long diagonals towards Chris Wood. So it, yeah. you know, I imagine for. For a neutral who a neutral is also a massive football geek, it would have been quite an interesting game um, because for every for everyone else, it was just quite painful. I think <laughs> on all counts. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably fair. I, I, I mean, with regards to Bernie's physicality, I mean, there was there was a, a lot of people complaining online about it, sort of crossing the line. Um, I mean, I'm not sure where I sit on it. I was just so I was going to ask ask you again, June, before we change topic, and then Anita can come in more um, <laughs> about about that side of things. Did you think that Burnley were how we how should we say uh, unreasonably physical for a team of their style or not? Uh, well, I think that's a first of all, that's a much bigger discussion than just a draw at Burnley, and <laughs> that certain teams have a reputation of playing, you know, very proper old school, I, I say this with heavy air quotes, yeah. proper old school, you know, hard hitting football. And other teams try the same thing and you get called, you know, diving sheets, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, th- th- that's a question for the FA and for referees everywhere. And I can't ask them to confront every single piece of their own biases, even though I would very much like to, because I think that would be a 30 year project. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would, it would certainly require some of the referees who are currently in positions of authority to not be around any longer. It's true. It's, it certainly would, and I am certainly quite shocked that some of them have lasted as long as they did. But again, um, to actually get back to the question, I don't think it's unfair because fairness is dependent on the rules, and because the rules are not enforced consistently in our league, and that's just. That's not news. That's something that we all know. So that's something that every team 
has to take into account that fine if Burnley think that they can play this way and get away with it which clearly they can then yes that is part of the game whether we like it or not I don't like it personally obviously I would much rather that you know people kept their pitches well trimmed and watered so that every game um, teams can play the kind of football that they actually want to instead of being forced to cliff at 70 yards and hope that somebody gets to the end of it but that said because Burnley did set up to play that way the fact that we couldn't quite deal with um, as you said their long crosses in and the fact that they would just take shots and wait for us to put it behind the goal so that they got another corner there was one sequence in the beginning or of the second half I think where it just it seemed like Bernie was getting a corner every single time they got up into our penalty area and honestly my heart was in my mouth <laughs> every time that happened uh because like we're not really that great at defending corners I think we've gotten better this year well I, amusingly we are still the only team in the Premier League who've scored more goals from corners than Bernie this season <laughs> <laughs> Just you know, never let it be said the football gods don't have a sense of humor, and that that's a fact. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, if you know Burnley are going to do that and try to make you give up corners and then just like waft it in and knock it past you when nobody's paying attention, you know, one out of ten times, then possibly we should have a plan in place to deal with that. And it just seemed like we didn't at all. Well, I mean, this is. Oh, sorry, I was going to say this is the thing: is that Burnley's tactics, when executed well, uh, they're never going to be an, uh, the kind of tactics that get you to the, the the upper echelons. But they are effective. They are. They are extremely annoying for teams that like Arsenal that really don't want to play that kind of physical game, and you know, have someone get into the box and elbow people out of the way. You know, I I was missing Socrates, definitely, but more than Socrates, I was missing Herr Mertesacker again. <laughs> because um, just one thing that when Mertesacker was playing for us, because he was so tall and so positionally aware, teams would just, like, stop sending in crosses or high balls against us because they just realized yeah. it was pointless. So then, essentially, we forced opposition teams to try to pass around our defense, at which point Mertesacker and Kishali could direct teammates to help shore up that line of defense and that was a great way that we imposed our game on the opposition but i don't really know how you bring that back short of finding someone else who's as tall and positionally aware as paragraph sacker is well that may lead to some some questions i've got coming up actually uh oh boy <laughs> uh, well no i mean they're not as not, not as frightening as they sound don't worry um I mean, I was—I I found it just quite interesting, sort of, with with the Burnley thing because I, I feel that Burnley have, are very, very clever in that. Yes, they're yes, they're best football style, and their, <laughs> their manager and their fans are all a bit Brexity in terms of attitude. Uh, boo! But um, <laughs> they are the Stoke of the Premier League. Well, well, this is the thing—they're not quite Stoke because Stoke. <laughs> they are. A bit more nice. Yeah, because Stoke <laughs> resorted to just violence. You know, Stoke, yeah. uh, in, until they tried to make themselves a football team and then got relegated, Stoke, <laughs> Stoke were a team that were o- overtly physical uh, and always right right up to the edge of what was acceptable and sometimes obviously clearly beyond that. 
Whereas, whereas Burnley seem to be much better at judging where the line is and just stopping where the line is. Except for Ashley well, Barnes, who's obviously a massive see you next Tuesday, but he was injured. Um, wouldn't you think that teams like Stoke have pushed that line far enough for teams like Burnley to exist, though? Because if we didn't have Stoke to compare Burnley against, we would just say, oh, Burnley. They're, you know, they're the standard of, like, how physical and nearly over the line a team can get. But because Stoke exists, we're like, oh, well, they're not actually that bad. Well, there's a bit of that, but it's also, I think, for, as you say, that slightly old school culture that is always going to be part of English football, or at least for for a while yet. I mean, you know, obviously me being sl- slightly older than both of you, <laughs> and having been an Arsenal, I'm a slightly, maybe that's a bit optimistic, but anyway, uh, having, having <laughs> been a, a fan of Arsenal teams who were... Uh, certainly f- capable of, of indulging whatever kind of violence you were up for thank you very much <laughs> um, it means there's sort of uh, I suppose that is my inherited uh, experience which makes me as long as as, as long as it's you know not seeking to actively injure people <laughs> like Stoke sometimes did actually um, yeah yeah. Then, then I'm kind of like, okay, well, I don't like it, and referees need to get on top of this shit. But, but, but it's also because you know, Burnley have really not spent very much money on players, and if you don't have the resources, then and you want to stay competitive, you've got to try and find a competitive advantage, I suppose. But I do get pissed off with Sean Dyche's endless bleating about how they are the last bastions of fairness, and everyone else <laughs> cheats. And it's like, you know, it's like I'll put a sock in it, you. <laughs> fucking gravel throat twat I mean he's he's you know he's just such a fucking hypocrite of course football fans are all hypocrites but uh, he he's taken it to an to an extreme level uh, but it did yeah but I'm uh, I'm gonna risk sounding uh, like you know your dad <laughs> and that's quite a leap for me Anita but go for it <laughs> And, you know, to say what you also mentioned with the the pitch, the quality of the pitch and everything, it's just, you know, a part a part of football, football league, you know, playing playing against different teams every weekend, uh, week in, week out during the whole season. You go on different stadiums in different atmospheres in different situations and there, there has to be some kind of, you know, home advantage or something like that. And I really don't, don't think that having all... Stadiums look the same, beaches look the same, all teams playing the same or very, very similar style of football would be very entertaining if you go that far. Well, I mean, I do remember back in the day when uh, when Wenger first arrived, the opposition teams used to complain about us watering the grass too much so we could play, soft, play our fast city <laughs> football. So, yeah, it's always uh, two sides to every story. <laughs> but ironically, of course, if you look at Burnley's uh, re- recent away form, they've been pretty good at grounds where they've got lovely cut grass. So. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe it, this was you know the tactics to because they know that we don't play well on that kind of pitch, so they just didn't water it enough, not to help them but to hurt us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything for them, but it's certainly gonna make our game more difficult to play accurate fast transitions and they've done the same against every team that plays that kind of or attempts to play that style of football um so you know it's it's not sort of news yeah it's something you hate you know 
the way some teams play, hoofing the ball from the back to the fast striker up front, or not watering the pitch, or going too physical, but on the on you know right on the border <laughs> for a card, either yellow or a red. But it's just you know it's it's, it's what makes football, and it's interesting to see how teams like us or. City or even clubs Liverpool need to adapt to that kind of kind of football because in the Premier League you basically have I'd say 14, 15 different teams that play different kinds of football in one way or the, or another and I think mm. that's why why this is really interesting and fun to watch no matter which match you are watching not just you know Arsenal but some some random other I don't know if you go watch I don't know Birmingham against Sheffield United you it will be interesting to watch I think the Premier League's marketing department need to get on the phone to you Anita <laughs> I really I'm just listening to myself thinking yeah I definitely sound like you know one of those people that would have Union Jack in their Twitter beat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I don't think you sound like that, no. <laughs> but no, I mean, what you say is fundamentally true in, in that the Premier League is the most demanding league and is also the most popular league, um, not just because of the historical context, but also because it does provide that variety of demands which, which other leagues don't have as much and therefore can become a bit samey. You know, uh, Spanish football, when you're not watching the top teams, is quite dull, actually, uh, because uh, there is this similarity of style, but just executed less successfully. And you get to, a, to a certain degree, you get the same in Italy. Uh, it's, it's why, I suppose, alongside uh, the Premier League, the Bundesliga has, has seen such a growth in market and development because it, it it too has a sort of stylistic variance which and a sort of dynamic physicality which is sort of well just more exciting and kind of gets you more emotionally involved even if it is just swearing at the referee yeah it plays better on tv right i think this goes back to the point that um i think it was tim stillman on our blog was talking about a couple of years back of the question of is football even meant to be fun anymore <laughs> i think that's what anita say that Sometimes it's fun to see how do you deal with a pitch like Burnley or a couple of years ago when we were playing at San Siro, how do you deal with what was essentially a potato field in the middle <laughs> of the stadium yeah. where it was impossible to not only pass but like run consistently without tripping over something in the grass. And it's so, also, it's I'm also... not saying that's you know that anyone should try to do that. It's <laughs> bad for, for player health and we should you know preserve our players' legs before we try to make this... You know, like an entertaining Japanese quiz show where you just get yeah, cracked by face as you're <laughs> running down the pitch. Like that's not the game. I mean, it, it would make the playoffs more interesting if there was sort of like half football, half Takeshi's Castle. But yeah, yeah, or just like you know, you you make a mistake defending a corner, you get dropped through a trap door. Like. <laughs> I mean, to, to be fair, to be fair, I think we've all seen Arsenal defenders in the last few years and wished for exactly that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's a little too real. Mustafi, it's time to leave the Emirates Stadium. <laughs> you are the weakest link. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in quite a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I don't know where that, that went down the rabbit hole, literally. Um, so, I mean, looking more broadly, this obviously leaves Arsenal in a curious situation of being 11th 
in the Premier League, uh, sorry, 10th in the Premier League rather, uh, on equal points to 11th place Burnley, 12th place Newcastle, 13th place Southampton, and only one point ahead of 14th place Crystal Palace, uh, but also not far behind Everton, Wolves, United and Sheffield United, and six points behind Spurs now, who've got the jammiest of wins against Man City. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> like Just, ha- City should have scored wow. about seven in that game. <laughs> I feel like on the one hand, I'm happy because it always just like tickles me to watch City collapse so spectacularly when by all accounts, if you look at any stat, they absolutely steamrolled Spurs. Yeah. And then you look at the final scoreline, you're like, hang on, this can't be the same game. Like, how is that possible? Well, I sort of read the match report and then I watched the highlights and I was like, because <laughs> the match report was all you know it was suitably Spurs are a great la 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 and then you reach the highlights and like Spurs got battered for the entire first half and should have been about 5-0 down at half time in their own stadium yeah. uh, and just like the nature of how tight the table is between you know essentially 4th place and 14th is if Spurs had you know gotten what they deserved in that game they would be I think ninth place they would be just above us right now yeah exactly yeah but instead they're you know in a european spot (laughs) so yeah premier league premier league Uh, (laughs) watch it it's fun (laughs) and 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 and, i mean this is the bizarre thing like we we haven't lost in quite a while but we're we're now only seven points off the relegation zone uh (laughs) and six points off fifth place so it's kind of that that kind of yeah it's very sort of confusing to get a sense of where this season is going to pan out even in the league even ignoring the other competitions yeah, we are uh, unbeaten in 2020 hooray we are. <laughs> sadly so are Liverpool but we won't talk about that <laughs> <laughs> I mean it, it's a slow step as we talked about uh, a lot on this podcast and everyone else has been mentioning and Matthew, I think that you today mentioned how it's visible to see that uh, Arteta is working on fixing the defense first and mm. you will go uh, forward. And it's really the fact that we haven't lost since he has been in charge pro- properly. The, it shows that he has made some impact on defense and it's really now how he moves forward, how he works out the the midfield that is definitely struggling. And I think that he won't have to work a lot on the forward line because we have really great players up there. Uh, And just it's about sorting out the midfield and having them play what he, he has in mind, what he plans tactically. And that should be... I think that in the end it should be good enough to get us to European spots. Well, interestingly, on that note, uh, David Ornstein was reporting, uh, as was also reported on Daily on DailyCan.com, uh, re- reporting that uh, that apparently Arsenal are trying to trying to get hold of an, a number six midfielder in the summer. Uh, mm-hmm. which, and, and, and we know that um, you know. Arteta will certainly be influenced by the well. People always talk about it being Guardiola now, but let's let's be honest. It's Johan Cruyff, and then before Cruyff, Rudish Mikas, the Dutch school, uh, and before them, Johan. Uh, sorry, uh, Vic Buckingham. Who uh, my Johan Buckingham is my friend, so this is why I know so much about it. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, uh, that that centre field set up of one six and two eights, um, which is very much out of that. Uh, 1960s Dutch football um, 
And there's every reason to think that given that Arteta was trained in that as a youngster and then given as Arteta then has obviously uh, worked under Guardiola, um, that is some, what he's likely to prefer. But they are, apparently what they're suggesting is at the moment we're effectively having to play two sixes because, uh, well, because they're both, as as you said, June, they're sort of codependent mm-hmm. and, and not able to dominate that space on their own for one reason or another. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for if, if what Ornstein is reporting is true, that makes a lot of sense in terms of trying to address that midfield balance. Um, so we can then get someone else in the central midfield area who's capable of actually breaking into the opposition penalty area and, and, pr- and provoking the ball in a more attacking sense rather than at the moment we're having to s- forego some of that to, to give some defensive solidity. Um, I mean... Yeah, I mean, what do you see? I mean, this is big questions now, uh, but, but what do you both see as the approach that Arsenal need to take in slightly longer term going forward in terms of squad building and prioritising in terms of particularly the midfield area? I mean, in summer for next season and beyond. And beyond. <laughs> well, I know, nice easy question to begin with. <laughs> You said it, the, there won't be hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, sorry, this is one that I just happened to think of. I, I, the questions I've got coming up aren't hard, but this one is. Well, I mean, this is actually something I've been thinking about for quite a long time, and I can never... I always get stuck by the fact that we are set up in the opposite way of what Arteta apparently wants us to play like, which is, as you said, a six and two eights, that we are really, you know, set up to play with a whole bit a center mid and Mesut Ozil. We, so you would have to get rid of three midfielders who, you know, I, I assume you would have to get rid of Ozil, Shaka, possibly one of Genduzi, or um, I would think at this point Ainsley Maitland-Niles just because there's no spot in the team for him. Because otherwise we just end up with about 10 midfielders who all do the same thing, none of which is what Arteta wants. Well, on that note, I mean, I was posting about this on Twitter again this week because uh, people were talking about new signings and which we'll get onto in a moment um, and were suggesting that the arrival of Cedric Suarez would be curtains for Ainsley Maitland-Niles but I was thinking we don't know if he can perform to that level but surely as one of two eights Maitland-Niles is a pretty good fit for that position given his skill set has he actually performed as an eight for us in you know recent memory? Well, this is a, this is a strange thing. Is uh, his journey around the pitch in his career been very odd? <laughs> I mean, you know, around the pitch in eighty days, well, yeah, uh, or in his case, in eight seasons. But yeah, because he, <laughs> he started in the under under sixteens and eighteens as a right winger, very uh, very effective right winger. Then he moved to number ten position where he was far too good for the age group he was at, and so he went on loan to Ipswich, where he played on the right wing as a 17-year-old turning 18. And then when he got to the Arsenal first team, he was alternating between defensive midfield, uh, where he was playing for the under-23s, and, uh, and, and, then, and then obviously being shunted around every fullback position wherever we just needed a warm body. Um, <laughs> but I think he's only played three times in central midfield for the Arsenal first team. Uh, once is, in the, is very much the, the, the number six, uh, and then the other times in, in rather more box-to-box roles. Um, and he's been really good in all, of those, in all three of those games. 
Um, I mean, I mean, the most famously winning man of the match against Manchester United at Old Trafford, and getting Paul Pogba blowing smoke up his ass afterwards um, because he, basi- <laughs> he basically bossed the midfield in a game that United won late on with a Marin Fellaini set piece standard issue. Um, <laughs> And obviously the other game that stands out was the FA Cup tie against Southampton when it was a central midfield of him, Oxlade-Chamberlain and the Jeff in the archetypal 8-8-6-8 set up, which Wenger thought he'd try once a season. Um, (laughs) uh, Despite the fact it always worked and we had the perfect players to play it, because if there's one one thing that Aaron Ramsey is, it's it's one of two eights. which... Oh, you're going to make me cry I'm just thinking about <laughs> that era. And the, but the problem is, like, all those players, they're gone. It's just Ainsley left. And well, at this point, when, like, he hasn't been allowed a chance, really, to play in that role, even though I, I would think with how inconsistent Ganduzi has been at times, you would want to throw Ainsley in just to see what happens. Because surely it can't be worse than what's happening now. But the fact that he hasn't been given this chance by three separate coaches now makes me wonder if there's something that they see that tells them this is probably not a good idea. Well, I think, I mean, it's an interesting one because we at the weekend we saw no Maitland-Niles in the squad just after Arteta had been, like, bigging him up and talking mm. about his potential. But judging by the way that Arteta, when Arteta first came in, the way he was constantly communicating with Maitland-Niles off on the sideline, I, th- I, th- I could see him being a bit of an Arteta project player, but one he's not going to put in until he thinks he's a bit more ready for it. You know, obviously now we do have another right back and Bellerin's back. You know, obviously prior to that, the whole thing was let's get Maitland-Niles in the right fr- frame of mind to play fullback again after basically he had been totally exposed by Emery playing that position and not feeling entirely comfortable in it. And and now we've got the two fullbacks, so now we actually have the opportunity to for the first time in about a year and a half to actually let Maitland-Niles train as a midfielder. Um, yeah, completely opposite from curtains down for him with the Cedric signing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of those things that, you know, regardless of what Arteta thinks of Maitland-Niles, and obviously we don't know what he really thinks behind the scenes, but we're not going to see him playing in the first team in the midfield for a bit, simply because... When was the last time he played in central midfield for anyone? And, you know, and he'd been getting intensive coaching about playing as fullback because we had no other fit fullbacks. <laughs> so it's like you have to play fullback and this is what you have to think about and don't think about anything else. Um, My fear is we're going to stick him in a fullback position again, but on the left because we have no one there. Well, that, yeah, unfortunately his uh, versatility may cost him and he may find himself playing a game or two there depending on how bad Saka's knock is and how much longer Kolasinac is out for. Um, but I suppose at least, you know, the injuries in those positions should keep him around the squad while he's <laughs> while, while he's uh, learning to be a midfielder. But Arteta very much talked about him as if he's a midfielder. Uh, and I do think that while Maitland-Niles needs to develop a greater sense of urgency... Uh, he can be a bit casual at times or a bit timid for someone of his talent um, you know if you look at his physical and technical potential I mean there's I, th- I think any any coach manager who believes in their own coaching would love to get hold of a player of his skill set at his age and see what they could do with him um, so I'm still hopeful <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and it's also sort of it's interesting because with the defense first and the trying to find a way to give these game time to the young kids, it's it feels a little bit like uh, Arteta is the sort of tick attacker George Graham. Um, turning up after a period of losing its way in decadence, <laughs> trying to recapture lost glories through a mixture of youth team kids and uh, less heralded signings. At least, at least that's the imagery I'm choosing to take from it as someone who became an Arsenal fan quite early into George Graham's tenure uh, before we started winning anything. Um, and uh, on that note... Uh, because we have to get to it sometime before I actually let you guys leave and continue with your lives. Um, <laughs> we made a couple of signings. Um, yeah. <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> oh, the, the enthusiasm from both parties there. <laughs> wow. I have to say, well, it's dreamland here, kids. Well, they look good in kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yes, I know you appreciated Pablo Marie's upping the eye candy quota, Anita. <laughs> <laughs> You know me and beards. <laughs> <laughs> I know you like it. You like you like a stubbly chap. I know. I, know. <laughs> um, I don't know anything about him, so but I mean I know more about Cedric Suarez. But he, when the news came out about him and the fact that he is injured, all I could think about was Kim Chelstrom. Nothing <laughs> else. <laughs> so Kim we'll Chelstrom, who lest we forget, scored a vital penalty goal in en route to us winning the FA Cup. Well, I mean, I'm okay with this signing aside of that, that he's now injured and it seems that Southampton is really not sure why we signed him. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it's basically no pressure on this because it's a loan until the end of the season with no obligation to buy in the end. And if he does really well, we can keep him for free. I mean, obviously, paycheck and everything, but, you know, yeah, you don't yeah. have to buy him. So I think it's it's an okay situation for us to be in. If if he plays well, if he's good enough uh, for us, I mean, what can we complain about there? Yeah, I think, actually, the Cedric signing is quite smart, just as someone to play understudy to Bellerin, who does look tired after being playing so much, you know, coming straight off his injury. Hmm. That um, having a player who's, you know, he's, he's not brilliant in any respect, but he's also not bad in any respect, and he's used to the Premier League, which I think has got to be a big plus for us at this point, that to get anyone who can actually, you know, come in and immediately play if needed, you would either have to spend, you know, Man City levels of money to get someone top caliber, or you take a huge gamble on some kid, whereas we kind of found the middle road fortuitously in Cedric so hopefully he will just be the kind of the stopgap measure that we need to get Hector Bellerin to the end of the season without you know injuring himself again knock on every piece of wood available hmm. I mean I, I'm quite enthusiastic actually um, I mean I mean I'm always an optimist as as, as you as anyone listening to this will know but I, I like Cedric Suarez I, I think there's a few things I like about him I mean obviously what has been mentioned I totally agree with um, but also the fact that um, th this is a guy who yes he hasn't been great for Southampton over the last couple of years including a loan spell at Inter Milan but it's worth remembering that uh, 
this Southampton team has only just stopped a period of basic freefall over the last two years. And when he went on loan to Inter, Inter were a complete fucking shambles, which they seem to have sorted out. Now they've got a new coach and a complete new squad. <laughs> um, oh, and he's coming to a team that is just, you know, a bastion of solidity and not a mess at all. <laughs> is that what you're saying, Matthew? Well, I, we're, we're currently trending in the right direction. <laughs> Um, uh, that, that is true, but but also, uh, I, I suppose you know what I like about it is a number of things. One, it's effectively we're we're paying. Uh, if you don't include his wages, we're paying a couple of million for the privilege of having him on trial uh, for <laughs> for half a season, where he has something very tangible to play for. Uh, you know, if he does if he does well for us, then he gets to have a job playing for. Uh, one of the biggest teams in Europe and he I mean his interviews suggest that he's incredibly excited like slightly boyishly excited which was quite endearing um, but also what I like about him is he's a slightly different profile I mean he's still yet yeah, you know uh, nippy right back but um, he's much more of a how can I say uh, physical tackler than Hector Bellerin, he's got very good tackle stats and, uh, and and has done fairly consistently consistently over the last three or four years. Um, and as well as that, his he doesn't get into crossing positions all that often, and his he doesn't really beat players on the on the dribble very much. But his crossing stats are pretty good. Um, mm. So that means he offers something slightly different to to what we've got elsewhere in who can fulfill that role and lest we forget you know as has been mentioned he's experienced in the premier league but also this you know this is a guy who he won the euros with portugal being their first choice right back so while his form hasn't been as great the last couple of years there are some mitigating factors for that and at least he has shown that he can ha- be impactful in big games at a top level um so i think given the, given the risk to Arsenal, which in this case is bugger all, I, I, I think it's I think it's a great piece of business. And and as you say, we're going to need to protect Bellerin because otherwise he's he, you know he can't play every game this season. It's simply not plausible, despite the fact he's playing pretty well at the moment. Um, and then elsewhere we have the big mystery signing, uh, again a loan with a but this time with an option to buy, but with the loan covering about a third to a half, depending on who you believe, of the option to buy as well. Um, Pablo Marie, um, before I start spouting off, do either of you know anything about him at all? (laughs) I know absolutely nothing about him other than what people, you know, have gleaned in the three minutes since we signed him on loan and have tried to pass it off as like, here's a tome of knowledge on Pablo Marie. And I was like, do you even watch Brazilian football? No? Okay, but I'm sure I could learn the same thing from Wikipedia. Uh, but you know, I think I'm just excited that we're signing people that look like prospects of the future instead of people who are stopgaps for one season, which seem to be the kind of signings that we've been making for the last two seasons or so. Yeah, you know, certainly, not to point certainly, any fingers, but David yeah. Luiz. Well, certainly, it's certainly the, not a prospect for any kind of future beyond you know next year. Yeah, I mean, certainly the age profile makes more sense. I mean. Well, I mean, from what you, what the two of you have managed to glean from, from people, as you say, pretending that they're Brazilian football experts when all they've done is watching <laughs> YouTube compilations. Um, what, what, what do you, what are you sort of expecting, and what do you think he'll bring from what you've seen, <laughs> or heard, or read? <laughs> <laughs> he, 
I'm like some kind of backup for for central defenders. I'm not sure if he will start now because it's what we mentioned so so many times. You need to adapt to the Premier League and everything like that, and, and it's a big jump from from Brazilian league to the Premier League. So I'm not sure how much we will get to see him right now, especially if uh, Arteta is. You know, happy with how Mustafi and Luis are looking at the moment. Do you give him a, a shot, a chance uh, in the match when you have finally some some kind of form with those two playing together? What's your thoughts, June? Before I launch in, <laughs> I I really don't know what to think of him. Like I'm I'm not mad about it because it doesn't seem like. It doesn't seem like it's a huge loss for us either way, and it's obviously good to have depth when we have none whatsoever, and there are such huge question marks over Rob Holding and Callum Chambers at this point mm. that functionally we only have two fit yeah. defenders, and one of them is really, really getting up there in terms of age. Um, and the other one is Mustafi. <laughs> yeah, you know, which, you know, again, Arteta is working his slow course of miracles on Mustafi, so... <laughs> For all I know, you know, next week Mustafi's going to turn up and be the answer to all our prayers. But he will still need a defensive partner. Yeah. I'm, so I think that might be where Murray comes in. Well, I, I mean, we don't know how he's going to adapt. Of course, we don't. And we, and we don't know whether he's going to be able to make the step up from Brazilian football, particularly as Flamengo are so dominant domestically. I mean, yeah. they, I mean they, basically, they were basically sort of like Barcelona of 10 years ago in South America this year incredible the impact that uh, that the new coaching regime had there but I mean there's a few things I like about it I mean obviously the low risk is always a thing we like you know if you're going to be taking a punt on someone it's better to be spending 5 to 10 million than 30 million uh, mentioning no names um, <laughs> uh, but also you know he's left footed and it's really clear from the players that we've been linked with and they were sniffing around that Arteta wants a left foot centre half, uh, just to give that different distribution option and to give more protection. When you know it's it's very hard for a right footed centre half to make tackles if someone's running down the channel alongside them if they're playing on the left, and so th- that should help. And, and statistically, looking at Marie, I mean, you know, I've 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 only watched a couple of Flamengo games when he's been there and one of them was the one against Liverpool so I can't pretend to be an expert but I have to fall back on what's in hard writing as it were and statistically his you know his tackle rates are great uh, his distribution is very good I think anyone who even has access to YouTube can tell he's not the quickest Um, but he was crucial in Flamengo developing this high line which was revolutionary in Brazil which seems rather bizarre Um, (laughs) whether he can be effective in a a high line against teams in a league where they're used to opposition having high line and know how to exploit it is another matter but I suppose one other thing which is sort of uh, your comments earlier guys about Mertesacker made me thinking was again Pablo Marie's 6 foot 3 or 6 foot 3 and a bit which would make him comfortably our tallest centre half, because um, that make him even taller than and David Luiz. Um, and he has been a threat from attacking set pieces in Brazil. And given that we're actually looking decent from attacking set pieces this year, that also makes him quite interesting. Um, and we all like to be sort of interested in the story of a late bloomer. I mean, the fact that City bought him three years ago, even though they just sent him on loan for three seasons in a row, 
does suggest that they saw something there and perhaps that gives our may have influenced our tetas input into whatever discussions edu and the team were having um so like the rest of you i, I don't have any clear expectations I, I can totally see a number of ways in which he fits a gap that we have um and i love the fact that it's a loan with an option to buy because it means if if it doesn't work out we send him back to brazil and we and we rekindle our our what was concrete interest in matt vienko from shakhtar who is a, a more dynamic but considerably smaller left-sided defender who uh w- would also i think be a very good addition so yeah um it's I wonder all- if um, Marie's future also has anything to do with Saliba, who we have to remember is still at Saint-Étienne and touted to be like the best young defender in Europe over the next several years. Mm. Well, so I mean, if- go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, well, Saliba's played most of his football on the right side of central defence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess there's an opportunity for there for Marie, but it all depends on how well he does with it. I mean, Saliba obviously isn't going to be thrown into playing 50 games a season as soon as he turns up. But apart from Sintetia's defeat at the weekend, he's been their best defender when fit this season. Um, And a lot of people have been talking him up, as you say. So, I mean, it's very hard for us to be able to predict, predict at all. Like, out of our collection of central defenders, either currently here or arriving, who's going to be here in two, three years' time? Um... You know, with Chambers and Holding, it's how do they return from injury? Uh, can they get back to the levels that they were when they were playing in their absolute best form? Is that good enough, even at those levels? How long can David Luiz last for? Is Socrates going to be retained or are they going to be let go? What happens with the redemption of Mustafi, etc., etc.? And, oh, and we still got Mavropanos on loan as well. Yeah, who had a better game in his second game for Nuremberg than he did in his first, so that's, that's good. Um, and we will have a link to Pomencano as well. Yes, the on, the endless links to the Leipzig centre-half, oh. who we'd all love to sign because he's quick as anything, and that's always quite exciting, uh, and has great dual stats and all the rest of it. But he's going to, even with when his contract clause kicks in, he's still going to be sort of high 40s, low 50s and millions of pounds. And um, is that going to be a priority for Arsenal, given what business they want to do elsewhere? Yeah, impossible. <laughs> I mean, it, just, it doesn't sound like we have that kind of money to be throwing around now, especially if, you know, there there's not um, an insignificant chance that we won't even be Europe come next year. Yeah, I mean, it does, you know, make the Europa League campaign more important than ever. Um and obviously, you know, Arteta is going to push for the FA Cup. But yeah, the, I mean, Europa League is is not quite the bill and end all, but it's this is pretty close to it at this stage. But it, I mean, for people like me who are addicted to football management games, this is sort of going to be quite an interesting period uh, in Arsenal's history because there's potential for a lot of turnover and renewal at the club in the next couple of seasons. And it's really hard to have a clear picture of who's going to be in the first 11 in like two years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks... I will say, I certainly hope Bird Leno is still there because I have to be on brand. Yeah. I, was, I, was... <laughs> and I, and I have, have not said Leno, I believe, in this entire hour that we've been talking. 
I was literally just about to to to, to, to open that door for you to to score into. So, uh, so you, you, <laughs> thank you, you, thank you, thank you. You beat, beat me to the punch. Yeah, I mean, it seems you know, unless he, unless he suddenly drops off a cliff out of nowhere, it seems like he'll be number one. Uh, Hector Bellerin hopefully will still be around and will retain his fitness. And um, but then after that, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, will Martinelli continue developing? And then if he does continue developing, we'll be able to keep hold of him or will Barcelona bid £100 million for him? (laughs) Uh, If they want to give us £100 I say, please. And, you know, we'll send him with a gift wrap over. um, And buy uh, Thomas Tafis. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I was, going to, I was going to say there's a you're putting trust there, but anyway. Um, but but also, which of our young players are, are, are going to stick? You know, Maitland-Niles, Willock, Nelson, and Ketia, Smith Rowe. Are any of them going to actually take the next step and be first team players? Are they going to be squad players? Will Pepe find a greater consistency to his game, or will he end up being shipped off for lots of money? We've got two aging strikers who. Uh, I mean, aging is probably a bit, a bit disrespectful, but certainly in contract terms, they're aging. <laughs> uh, and and we've already discussed the centre half situation, and and also how our central midfield is uh, not quite where perhaps long term we want it to be. So, yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they do the old. You know, it's like it's a bit like politics, isn't it? The curse is may live in interesting times and. Uh, certainly from a perspective of trying to analyse what the hell's going to happen to Arsenal in the near future it is an interesting time it just well speaking of football manager games this situation just reminds me when you start a game on FM and the club tells you oh we have a long list of very positive things about this club but the one major drawback is we are lacking depth in every single position (laughs) (laughs) and that's usually the game where I go okay we're going to start over at a different club because I can't do this (laughs) And, and that's the challenge that Mikel Arteta essentially has right now just, you know, best of luck to him. Well, I mean, in, with all fairness, if Arsenal's fucking scouting staff had been using Football Manager, they'd have a better squad assembled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not just from playing Football Manager, but any anyone who, I mean, I've seen video of him before, but anyone who'd played Football Manager would have known about Erling Haaland when he was 15. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd, yeah. seen, I'd seen clips of him playing for Mulder when he was 15 or... Well, was it when he was 16? I forget. Anyway, and was like, oh, my God, need to fucking buy this kid. He's raw as anything, but he just knows where to go. And he's the size of a house. Um, (laughs) And and of course, uh, we we didn't buy him. (laughs) Admittedly, I guess by the same by the same logic, you could have invested hundreds of millions in Freddie Adu. But anyway, um, nothing's nothing's 2020 bar hindsight. As I mean, we did have Olivier Giroud at that point, which covered a multitude of sins for all the problems that he brought us yeah i mean except i mean except for running obviously that was the one right thing. yeah but i mean listen if xabi alonso can build a highly successful career without running once in his entire <laughs> life <laughs> olivier Giroud can too do the same is what i like to say well i mean he's uh, he's done all right for the french national team he's won a world cup and he's been ever present despite, despite the fact that they're uh, about a, 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 key, a massive long queue of french strikers all score more goals than him uh <laughs> Although his record for France isn't too bad, actually. Maybe but, now they will call up uh, Lacazette when he stops scoring. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think you may be looking at some time after hell freezes over before, before he gets uh, selected for France again. 
and I, and I can feel like evoking Lana on that one. Some some swearing somewhere distantly into the house. Shump <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, is an idiot. Um, but uh, well, I've sort of decided I. I wasn't going to harass her to try and get her on again until Lacazette started scoring again because she might find it too depressing. <laughs> but, but anyway. Um, so we've got a bit of a break. We've got, like, the first ever English winter break thing happening. Uh, so yeah. just before we finish, I just wanted to ask both your opinions on that, really. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have a break and not think about football next week. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I still probably watch any matches that are on, <laughs> but it's really good for for players to get some kind of break during this, and and I think it will do well for Arteta as well. Well, I, I know that uh, you're based in Boston, June, and obviously uh, the Boston sports teams tend to be pretty successful. But uh, as a someone who's ended up many, many years ago before they even were successful as a Detroit Red Wings fan by accident. I particularly enjoyed the All-Star break because it meant that the Red Wings weren't playing for a week. Because <laughs> uh, they is fucking shit this year. <laughs> They're literally on course to be like the worst team in like 25 years or something like that and the worst Red Wings team in like 40 years. So that's fun. <laughs> I think the lesson here might be if you're considering getting into a new sport, don't follow the teams that Matthew follows. <laughs> <laughs> to be, to, well, I think, I think it's, it's, you're, you'll be fine for a bit because I started yeah. supporting Arsenal just before we won the League Cup in 87 and then we went on and won lots of titles and had a really good period with a couple of blips here and there. Uh, you know, I've got George Graham, I've got Arsene Wenger, so that was great. Uh, and the Detroit Red Wings, I started supporting literally uh, about the year they suddenly had the most amazing draft ever and <laughs> and got like Lindstrom and Fedorov and Konstantinov and whatever and they're all in the same fucking draft and went from being crap to being really good in a few seasons and then became a dominant franchise for so you know you'll be all right for a bit but after <laughs> after a while you know then it's time to move on which it's kind I'll, of like a bell curve where it peaks very early and then after that it's just a long slide down <laughs> that's some, if that's if that's the gamble you're willing to make actually it's not bad uh, i mean it does sound quite a lot like my life so <laughs> oh, i think i think we're getting a little too real on this podcast. <laughs> I don't really mean that, everybody. <laughs> I know that recording a podcast every week might seem quite tragic, but I quite like it. Um, yeah, so on that weird confessional uh, note, uh, I, I think, uh, is there anything else either of you want to bring up before I knock this on the head? Um, no. In that case, I have one last super simple question for both of you, because actually I've meant to ask Anita before, and seeing as we've got uh, you on as well, June, and this is a question that requires no knowledge but your own personal experience, which is what, what made you both become Arsenal fans? And can you remember the moment? Oh, I, I oh my God. It. I actually talk about it way too, too much on Twitter. <laughs> Okay, well, you're not on some of, some of these listeners aren't on Twitter, so let's give it for them too. Yeah, one one name, Tex Fabregas. Okay. Back in back in two thousand and six, yeah, it was it was around February, I think, when Arsenal played against uh, Juventus in Champions League. Ah. And he scored 
and he was really cute. <laughs> <laughs> Not ashamed to admit that. Yeah, he he got me into Arsenal, and yeah, I'm still here. Very grateful for that. When Bobby Perez tackled Patrick Vieira in a weird moment, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. It was that first season was when we got to the Champions League final and yeah and everything after that was just you know <laughs> was it the, the peak in my first half season <laughs> see you're even worse than me <laughs> <laughs> but we won FA Cups and everything afterwards so yeah exactly exactly it kind of kind of and, and yeah. mostly the football's been good I mean obviously I I got into Arsenal because of him. You know, I, I saw him uh, in the match and Googled him the other day and and read all about the club and everything, printed out Wikipedia pages because we still had dial-up back yeah, home. Yeah. When I started, and, you know, I wouldn't, wasn't allowed on, on the internet for longer than a, an hour per day. <laughs> so I printed out all the... Uh, Wikipedia entries about Arsenal and history and everything and was reading that before sleep every night <laughs> that, that's seriously cute <laughs> <laughs> I had posters on my wall and everything yeah <laughs> oh I can see why you were so heartbroken okay okay yeah okay this is why it's harder for you to forgive I understand, I understand. <laughs> No, I mean, I understand quite well because I have a similar relationship with Seth Fabregas. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think he was the reason that I started watching Arsenal by the time I, like, really started consistently watching the Premier League. Seth was well on his way out. So it did drag on for, like, two and a half years. <laughs> so yeah. my introduction to Arsenal was, oh, our captain, who we raised from the time he was a small child and gave him everything, is about to royally fuck us over. <laughs> To go to a team that absolutely does not need him. Do you want to join this adventure as an Arsenal fan? And I was like, yes, absolutely, I do. So I think that tells you everything you need to know about me. Get the masochism in early, yeah? Yeah, just massively. I was like, well, surely it can't get worse than this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a joke that was. We had quite a few captains who left. <laughs> yeah, we did. I just remember the next time being like, well... Fabregas did that. Surely Van Percy wouldn't. And literally a year later, it's like, well, <laughs> who's next? <laughs> and um, it, and it's not really changed since then. <laughs> no, it really hasn't. It's the thing. So I think like consistency, if nothing else, Arsenal have consistently brought me pain. Well, I, sp- um, I, I suppose in terms of captains, you know, Mertesacker never fucked off. He just stopped being being on the pitch, and Arteta yeah. came back. So you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not, not obviously not quite as, as you know sexy cool as, as Van Persie or, or Fabregas were no. on the pitch. But- I think like part of me just like that lingering trauma really made me viscerally afraid when Emery made Ozil a captain that I just expected him to fuck off within six months. To be fair, if if enough people had got their way, that would have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, yeah. th- three hundred and fifty grand a week does tend to keep you as in, in a gilded cage. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was uh, obviously being a slightly older vintage and a bit closer to the ground. Um, I mean, I was sort of nominally an Arsenal fan in in early 87, but I suppose I became very clearly an Arsenal fan when I got taken to the uh, Highbury, to the East Stand, uh, before I discovered the joys of terracing, uh, on New Year's Day 1988. Uh, and I can't remember if it, if that was a, a nil nil or a one one, but I think it was against 
I think it was against Luton Town, and I remember it was the game was terrible, but, <laughs> but the but the stadium was amazing, uh, and that and that was enough for me. Yeah, I just just got the taste of of the ground, and and that was it. Hook, line, and sinker. Didn't no thinking about it after that. And then very and then about three weeks later, we bought Lee Dixon uh, for. Something like three hundred thousand pounds before we before he went on to pay six hundred times for us, uh, and so he was my first hero because he'd joined the club just after I had essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and then we lost the League Cup final to Luton Town that season. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, yeah, learning experiences. Get them in early. We're, we've all been toughened up, and, and, and so we can, yeah. we can for yeah. face what awaits us. Anyway, forgive us, listeners, for me, uh, well, encouraging that period of brief self-indulgence, but that was to fill the slot we normally have where we talk about the next fixture, but, of course, there is no next fixture next week, and there will be another podcast next week. So, uh, anyway, with that in mind, uh, there's not much else to say, except for thanks to you listeners for listening to us uh, and joining us on this merry jamboree. Thanks, as always, to Anita, uh, all the way from Croatia, as we know, although she tweets like a geezer. And <laughs> thanks Your to- da, Anita. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your da. Yeah. And thanks to June, all the way from Boston. You can find at Twitter, uh, on Twitter even, at TLDR June, as spelt like the month. Uh, and you can, yeah, well, follow her. She's worth a follow because it's not all about Arsenal masochism just quite a lot of it <laughs> a rousing endorsement thank you, thank you. <laughs> to be fair to be fair who's gonna be listening to this apart from slightly masochistic arsenal fans so you know it's 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 like it's uh, it's preaching to the converted i hope i hope yeah or the big family <laughs> exactly yeah. all suffering together Anyway, uh, not much else to say except for have a great week, everyone. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at Daily Canon if you want to, or you can find me at L-O-M-E-K-I-A-N on Twitter. Uh, and obviously, if you don't already know where Nita is on Twitter by now, what you're doing, <laughs> like seriously, she's ubiquitous. Oh. Like no, the, when, when Anita came to England with her, uh, I'm going to finish with this one. When Anita came to England with her fella to see Arsenal beat Man United, good work. Uh, yeah, yeah. I met her in the pub. Uh, which pub was it again? I forget, Anita. Tolly. Tolly, Tolly. exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, this is the, bear in mind, this is the first time she'd ever been to the UK. And the pub is full of people coming up to her and saying hello. <laughs> <laughs> and some of those people looked like they weren't on Twitter a lot, if you know what I mean. Yeah, basically I tweet too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just found it very amusing because, like, uh, I've obviously been going to the Arsenal on and off for, like, 30-plus years, and no one knew who I was. The only person in the bar <laughs> the pub who knew I was, apart from Anita, was uh, Dave Gunaholic, God rest his soul. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was kind of just an amusing, amusing moment for me. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to stop talking, otherwise I'll keep talking. <laughs> Uh, and with that in mind, thanks again to both my wonderful guests. Always a pleasure, Mitch. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks again to you listeners and to everyone. Have a fantastic week. Take care and speak to you soon. 